If you have your copy of God's Word, let's turn together to the book of Habakkuk. Habakkuk chapter 1. And we will continue. Been out a couple of weeks. Uh, Pastor Ben was here uh, two Sundays ago, and then last Sunday uh, was Christmas, so we took some time to look through uh, uh, Psalm uh, chapter 2, or the Psalms, in order to understand the truth of, of God's Word in Christ and His coming and His kingship and His rule and reign and how that pertains to us uh, as Christians, especially in light of the Christmas season. But Habakkuk chapter 1, we're going to pick back up where we left off a couple of weeks ago. This morning we're going to be looking at verses 5 through 11. Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. And I've entitled my sermon this morning, The Lord Answers Prayers. The Lord Answers Prayers. And if you found your way there, let's stand together to read God's Word again. Habakkuk chapter 1, starting in verse 5. Look among the nations. Observe. Be astonished, wonder, because I am doing something in your days you would not believe if you were told. Behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that fierce and impetuous people who march throughout the earth to seize dwelling places which are not theirs. They are dreaded and feared. Their justice and authority originate within themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards and keener than wolves in the evening. Their horsemen come galloping. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle swooping down to devour. All of them come for violence. Their horde of faces moves forward. They collect captives like sand. They mock at kings and rulers are a laughing matter to them. They laugh at every fortress and heap up rubble to capture it. They will sweep through like the wind and pass on. But they will be held guilty. They whose strength is their God. You can be seated this morning. It was the beloved Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great doctor, as many call him, who pastored there in London, who once said this, quote, We all tend to prescribe the answer to our prayers. We think that God can come only in one way. But Scripture teaches us that God sometimes answers our prayers by allowing things to become much worse before they become better. He may sometimes do the opposite of what we anticipate, end quote. This is exactly the place that we find the prophet here, is he has been praying and praying. And just to draw us back together, since it's been a couple of weeks, you remember the opening part of these verses, you have this man, the prophet Habakkuk, who has been lamenting to God pouring out his heart, crying out to God to do something because God's own people, the nation of Judah, are behaving treacherously, wickedly, sinfully. And as the prophet looks out, he sees that he, the prophet understands that the world is going to act like the world. He's not expecting the sinful people of the world to not act like sinful people because he knows they're lost, they're going to act like lost people. But as he looks at his own nation, the nation of Judah, that is supposed to be the very people of God, he is brokenhearted. I mean, the, 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 the word, the, the anguish and the sorrow that, that is really found here in these verses, if you read them and you can just see his heart cry as he looks out and he sees God's people acting so sinfully. And so he had asked God, God, when, when will you do something about this? When will you stop what is happening here? When will you cause this violence and destruction and strife and contention, this lawlessness to cease? 
Now, we understand from reading through the scriptures and, and really reading on through the book, if you have read ahead, the prophet here was, was crying out to God to do something. And what he was crying out to God to do was for God to send a revival to the nation of Judah. And, and not, again, a revival in the connotation and the terminology that we would use today or that many people use today to describe a revival. Uh, he was not just talking about a, a series of preaching meetings and, and music and sawdust trails where people's emotions are riled up for a certain amount of time and then it all fades away. No, Habakkuk is crying out to God for true spirit-filled revival. A change that would happen in the nation of Judah that would cause people to recognize the holiness of God and the sinfulness of themselves. A revival that would cause them to turn away from their sin and to turn back to the God who had been so faithful to them. This is what he's crying out for. He's asking God to answer and to do something. And in verse 5, the answer comes. Now, the answer comes not only to Habakkuk. The opening part of the book is just the prophet speaking. He's not talking to the people. He's just speaking directly to God. We see Habakkuk's prayer closet here. We see the innermost heart of this man. But when God speaks in verse 5, he's not just speaking to Habakkuk, but he's now speaking to the entire nation. Finally, at long last, an answer has come from the Lord. Now, I don't know how this worked in the life of a prophet. We really don't have any great detail on how this took place when God spoke to the prophet and how he understood these words in order to be able to write them down. But there had to be something that the prophet knew. This is when God is now speaking in order to be able to write these things down. And you can only imagine as, as Habakkuk began to write these things down to listen to what the Lord had to say, that at first, he's like, finally, the Lord is giving an answer. But then as the text goes on, we can only imagine Habakkuk's dismay. Because the answer that God gives here was not the answer that Habakkuk wanted, nor was it ever one that he would have expected. Habakkuk had prayed for the Lord to change the heart of his kinsmen. He wanted to see his people changed. He wanted to see justice prevail. He wanted to see truth reign again. And he wanted it to come through the change of his people. And yes, God is going to answer Habakkuk's prayer. But he's going to do it in such a way that will shock both the prophet and the nation alike. God is going to answer Habakkuk's prayer, but he's not going to do it in the way in which Habakkuk had hoped. He's going to do it in a much more unexpected way. I want you to notice first in verse 5, an unexpected answer. An unexpected answer. He says there in verse 5, again, the Lord speaking to the prophet and to the nation, look among the nations, observe, be astonished, wonder, because I am doing something in your days you would not believe if you were told. Now, he's not even really gotten to the point yet. Right now, he's just calling the people's attention to something. He's really calling them to understand who they are and who they are before him. Because it's not until verse 6 that, that God really rolls out the carpet to help them understand exactly what he's going to do. But he's giving them an answer here. He's, he's calling them before he even tells them the greatness of his plan. He wants them to understand who he is as God. 
And the first thing we understand about this is that they were a people who were too nearsighted. Now, if you're like me, the whole concept of nearsightedness and farsightedness has always been confusing, right? But if you're nearsighted, that means you can't see far away. And this was the problem with Judah. They were too nearsighted. They were too introspective when it came to life. They were looking too much at themselves and not enough at the things that were happening around them. God is telling Judah, he says, you need to look to the nations. That word nations there really is the, is the word heathen. He says, you need to look outside of yourself, look at the world and see what is happening. Why? Because God is not just at work in the nation of Judah. God is at work in the entirety of the global scale. God is working everywhere at all times. And this was the problem. They were so occupied with themselves, they had forgotten the rest of the world. In their minds, only they mattered and the rest of the world was inconsequential. After all, the nation of Judah is God's chosen people, right? And they relished in that fact. So if we're God's chosen people, if we're the people of God, then what else matters? Who else matters? Right? We, we understand that the Jewish people called themselves the people of God and anybody else in the world who was not a Jew was called a Gentile. That, that's, that's how clearly the delineation was for them. That if you're not a Jew, if you're any other nation, any other tribe, any other people, we mark a distinction to say that you're not us. And so as they looked out, they were inwardly focused. They were too nearsighted. God is going to do something that's going to be difficult for the citizens of Judah to fathom. And they have to look. They've got to look outside of themselves and look on the, uh, the scene of the world. The, the, the people of Judah really weren't even concerned with anything that happened outside the walls of the city. So God's calling them to look out, but they must not just look. They must observe. This calls to take careful consideration and recognition of what God is doing. We understand the difference, right, between looking and considering or observing. You might be sitting at the park one day and you're looking around and you're just kind of looking, right? But then all of a sudden, something catches your eye. There's some kids playing ball over on the side and you begin to watch and observe them as they play. And you observe them. You don't just look. You don't just move your glance past, but you watch and you see the game that they're playing. See who maybe is the better of athletes of, uh, of the group or, or who has the, the, the better uh, kick or, or receiving whatever of the game they may be playing. You're observing. You're watching. And this is what God is calling the nation of Judah to do. He says, don't just look, but observe. Watch everything that is taking place. Take careful note. Because I'm answering your prayer. I'm beginning to work and I'm beginning to do something. But it's interesting because he says to be astonished and to wonder. What God is getting ready to relate to the nation of Judah is something that is going to cause them really to gasp for breath. To just be awestruck. The word used here really just means to be dumbfounded. It would be a shock to the system because something's getting ready to happen. Something's getting ready to take place that even in their wildest dreams, they would never imagine it even though they should have. And we'll get back to that in just a moment. But they were a people who were too far nearsighted. 
Notice what he says. He says, because I am doing something in your days that you would not believe if you were told. God chastises the people because not only were they too nearsighted, they were too unbelieving. He says, you wouldn't believe this even if you were told. And he says, I'm doing this. He says, when you look out and you see what's happening, understand that I am the one who is causing all of these things to happen. And he says, I'm getting ready to do something that even if somebody told you about it, you're not going to believe it. This is how far-fetched it would seem. How the word we would use today might be crazy. This, 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 is just, this is just crazy. You're, oh, I'll tell you, the, the word we would actually use today is conspiracy theory. Oh, that's just, a, that's just a conspiracy theory. God would never do something like that. The people of Judah were proud to a fault. They were convinced, really, that they were invincible. Right? Because God's going to tell them about what He's going to do, and their response is going to be, God would never do that because of who we are. God would never allow that to happen. We are His people. And this was a common thread and a fault among God's people, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. They thought that even though they were behaving so wickedly before God, even though they were in the midst of such gross and negligent sin, they still believed that God would never allow them to suffer, God would never allow them to fail, or God would never allow them to be conquered. The prophet Isaiah had warned the people in Isaiah chapter 28. For the Lord will rise up at Mount Perizim. He will be stirred as in the valley of Gibeon, to do his task, his unusual task, and to work his work, his extraordinary work. Now listen to what the prophet Isaiah warned the people. He says, And now do not carry on as scoffers, or your fetters will be made stronger. For I have heard from the Lord of hosts of decisive destruction on all the earth. The prophet Jeremiah, in similar fashion, he said, They have lied about the Lord and said, Not he. Misfortune will not come on us, and we will not see sword or famine. The prophets are as wind, and the word is not in them. Thus, it will be done to them. They denied that the Lord, the people of God did, that the Lord would ever allow evil to befall them. We will not suffer. God will not allow it. We won't go hungry. We will not be attacked. He would never do that to us. In fact, the real issue is not what we're doing. It's the prophets. They speak lies. They're full of wind. They're the conspiracy theorists. They're the ones who are saying things that aren't true. The people's refusal to acknowledge and believe the prophets even grew to the point that they plotted against the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 18, Come and let us devise plans against Jeremiah. Surely the law is not going to be lost to the priest, nor counsel to the sage, nor the divine word to the prophet. Come and let us strike at him with our tongue and let us give no heed to any of his words. This was a common theme for the prophets. When they would rise up and declare the word of the Lord, the people of God would say, oh no, God would never do that. We won't believe it. It cannot be true. And God here is saying, I'm getting ready to do something that even if the prophet were to tell you, even if anybody else were to tell you, he said, you thought what the prophet said before was astonishing. He's like, well, just wait. Because what I'm getting ready to tell you next is going to be even greater. 
But this was not just an Old Testament problem. Because when it came to the New Testament, the people of Israel were still the same. The religious leaders would not believe the truth about Christ and His power and authority. The, the last great prophet of God, they would not believe the warnings of Christ nor of the apostles. Remember what they said about Jesus? This is quoted in the book of Acts, and they're talking about what the, the, the Pharisees and the religious leaders did. They put, false, put forward false witnesses who said, This man incessantly speaks against this holy place in the law. For we have heard him say, this Nazarene Jesus will destroy this place and alter the customs which Moses handed down to us. As, the, as Jesus had preached and the Pharisees and the scribes heard what he said, they denied it. They said, no, it cannot be true. It is not true. It will not be so. As Paul and Peter and the other New Testament apostles preached the gospel, they were again denying the truth of God's message through his men. It cannot be true. It will never be true. We will not believe it. The people of God in the nation of Judah were so inwardly focused, they could not see the operation of God in the nations of the world, and they were too unbelieving to believe or admit that God would ever bring destruction or judgment to them. They thought they were invincible, not only in physical strength, but spiritually, because even though they were sinning before God, they thought that God would never bring justice to them. Albert Barnes in his commentary says, So it ever is. Man never believes that God is in earnest until his judgments come. This is how mankind acts. God will judge those wicked people over there. And he'll judge those wicked people over there. But he's not going to judge me. Because he loves me. But friends, we need to understand that if God loves us and if we are His, He will bring justice to sin. Amen. If we are His and we have drifted and done something we should not have done, it is because God loves us that He brings correction to us. It was because God loved His people that He continually sent the prophets to warn them and to bring correction to them. So the people were denying that anything would take place. And again, back to the New Testament. Because there's such beautiful parallels here between what's happening in the nation of Judah here with Habakkuk and what we would see through the life of Christ. Because the Apostle Paul would, would quote this very text in Acts chapter 13 as he's preaching there at Antioch and he's, he's really calling down judgment upon the nation of Israel for their rejection of Christ. And he says, therefore, take heed so that the things spoken of in the prophets may not come upon you. Behold, you scoffers and marvel and perish, for I am accomplishing a work in your days, a work which you will never believe, though someone should describe it to you. Now, what Paul was describing there, he was using the, prof the, the, the passage here in Habakkuk to prophesy about the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. He says, if you do not turn back to God, God is going to accomplish a work that you would never believe. And we, we talked about that as we preached through Matthew chapter 24. That the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple there in AD 70 was, was an astonishing thing to the people of Israel. Something they would have never believed or been able to comprehend. 
So Paul here is using this to, again, point to this fact that there's such this beautiful parallel. God's people, again, at that time, were acting in the exact same way as they are in Habakkuk's day. They're acting treacherously before God, denying His truth and His Son. They're rebelling against God by crucifying His own Son, by not believing His prophets, by not believing His preachers. And he says, do not perish in the way, but turn back to God. Marvel. So what about us this morning? Do we think that we as Christians, that God will not allow events to befall us or the nation in which we live? Sadly, I think that there are many who believe that America has been given some type of free pass when it comes to the judgment of God. They say, oh, well, you know, America was founded upon Christian principles, and it was. History is is, is very clear that America was founded upon principles of godliness. Now, not all the founding fathers were really orthodox believers, but there was a desire for Christianity to prevail. There was a desire for the hope of the gospel to be proclaimed. But just because our nation was founded on good ideals, goodly principles, does not mean that God does not look at our nation and is not grieved and angry when he sees the sinfulness of this country. We oftentimes hear, we see bumper stickers that say, God bless America. Most of our politicians, if they finish an important speech, they finish it by saying, God bless the United States of America. But brothers and sisters, let's be honest this morning. God cannot bless America. I'm not saying that in his power that he is weak to be able to do it. He could. What I'm saying is that God cannot bless America because God cannot bless sin. God cannot bless wickedness. Now, this is not to say that there aren't godly people in our nation. Right? As we look around, we, we see we're sitting here in a room of beloved brothers, beloved brothers, sisters in Christ. And there are many churches across this county and across this nation where there are faithful people gathering together to worship the Lord in spirit and in truth. But as we look overall at our nation, we understand that our nation is one of wickedness and outright rebellion against God. When you look at the leadership of our country, and I'm not pointing to one political party, I'm, I'm lumping them all into one group this morning. We see that our political, the leadership of our country, shake their fist at God and deny that he can or will do anything about the things that they're doing. They promote and support and propagate things that go entirely against the very word of God. So I really have been struck by this as I've been studying this. It's like, We can't ask God to bless something that we know, according to his word, that he will not bless. Mm -hmm. What we need to be praying is that God would save America. That God would bring this nation back to where it needs to be. We must pray as the prophet did. That God would send an awakening to our nation to bring people to him. And, and, And how long do we pray for this? Well, we pray for this until God gives us an answer one way or the other. 
Habakkuk did not cease to lament and to pray to God until God sent him an answer. And when God sent him the answer, then he responded to that answer. So we do not cease to pray because I think oftentimes we're guilty to say, okay, well, we've prayed for God to send a, a change to our country. We've prayed for God to send revival. We haven't seen it yet. Things seem to be ours. Well, let's just pray harder. Let's be more diligent in our prayers. Let's not give up in seeking God's face on these things. But brothers and sisters, we must not think for one moment that God will not allow or could not allow things to get substantially worse in order to accomplish His purposes and to bring judgment where judgment is due. I don't know what God's plan is for America. I don't know what God is doing. But I do know that as people of God, we should be praying and seeking God's face for His transforming power to do something here. And not just in here, but in the entirety of the world. We really see Romans 1 in, in full scale all around us. So these people... He says, you would not believe it even if you were told. They denied that God would ever do something. They denied that God would ever move in power. They denied that God would ever move in justice. They denied that God would ever move in judgment against them. But now in verse 6, God is going to open up the doors to everything that's going to happen. And it's important before we move to the next verse that we understand how shocking this next verse would have been not only to Habakkuk, but to the nation of Judah. I want you to think back, maybe when you're a kid, maybe it's happened as an adult, but I, I seem to happen most for me when I was a child. Have you ever had the breath knocked out of you? I remember seeing this most often on, on the seesaw at the playground. And perhaps it was because we were a little too rough housing around and trying to launch people off of the seesaw. But you come off and you fall down to the ground and you hit so hard that it, it knocks the breath out of you. And, and you sit up and there's this feeling of, of terror and anxiety and fear that you really can't describe unless you've experienced it. Because you just can't breathe. You, you know you're supposed to try to draw breath in, but for some reason your body says, nope, not doing it right now. And you're sitting there and you're just tr- gasping and, and trying to draw breath in, but it will not come. That's exactly what's going to happen to Habakkuk and the nation of Judah in this next verse. Their very breath is going to be knocked out of them. As they hear what God is getting ready to do, there would be this moment where they're just like heaving within themselves to try to understand why God would do something like this. So he saw an unexpected answer. I want you to notice, secondly, an unusual means An unusual means, look at verse 6. He says, For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that fierce and impetuous people who march throughout the earth to seize dwelling places which are not theirs. God had already signed His name to His handiwork. And here He doubles down on what is about to occur, that it is undeniably from His hand. He said in verse 5, I am doing something. And there in verse 6, He says, I am raising up the Chaldeans. 
Now, the Chaldeans are the same as the Babylonians. It's the more ancient term for them. So as we preach through this this morning, you're going to hear me referring to them sometimes as the Chaldeans, sometimes as the Babylonians. They are one in the same. So God tells Habakkuk, he tells the nation, I'm going to answer your prayer, Habakkuk. I'm going to bring my people back to myself. I'm going to bring judgment upon their sin, but I'm not going to do it through pouring out my spirit in a manner of revival. He says, I'm going to do it by sending the most treacherous, wicked, debaucherous nation on the earth known today to come and to destroy you. And then my people will come back to me. Now, God had already warned his people about this through Moses almost 700 years earlier than this. Deuteronomy chapter 28, verses 49 to 52, the Lord will bring a nation against you from afar, from the end of the earth as the eagle swoops down, a nation whose language you shall not understand, a nation of fierce countenance who will have no respect for the old nor show favor to the young. Moreover, it shall eat the offspring of your herd and the produce of your ground until you are destroyed which also leaves you no grain, new wine, or oil, nor the increase of your herd or the young of your flock until they have caused you to perish. It shall besiege you in all your towns until your high and fortified walls in which you trusted come down throughout your land. It shall besiege you in all your towns throughout your land which the Lord your God has given you. It's pretty dreadful sounding. The Lord had warned His people. If you do not stop, if you do not turn back to me, if you do not turn away from your wickedness, this is what I'm going to do. Now, God was raising up the Chaldeans, which leads us to an interesting conundrum in a sense. Because many people would say, well, if God does that, he's the author of sin. But Scripture makes it very clear that God can and does raise up and use wickedness in his leaders, but he is not responsible for the wickedness of their behavior. They are responsible in and of themselves for the things that they do. God uses it to accomplish his purposes, but he is not the author of it. The Chaldeans would credit themselves for their rise to power and all their victories, but God says, I am the one who is raising this nation up. Now, the Chaldeans, in a sense, were really new on the scene of world dominance. They were really unknown for for hundreds of years. We first see them in Genesis chapter 11, the Tower of Babel, as they attempt to establish a one-world government and build a tower that reaches to the heavens. And really after that, they stay in relative obscurity until around 626 B.C. when they began to form an army. By 609, their conquest and their attacks on other smaller... um, leaders and and smaller countries had begun to worry really both of the dominant powers that existed in the world today, which were Assyria and Egypt. So these two nations united together to attack some of the outlying Babylonian outposts, but they were unsuccessful in their attempts. The army that the Babylonians had built was great. That same year, King Josiah died, the king of Judah, and his son Jehoahaz was placed in rule. Now, Jehoahaz was on his way back from Egypt. He had been there helping Egypt battle against the Babylonians, and Pharaoh Necho removed him from power and placed Jehoiakim on the throne. And then just a few years after that, in 605, Babylon entered into a battle at Carchemish against both Assyria and Egypt and utterly destroyed both armies. 
from this point on, Babylon and King Nebuchadnezzar now really ruled the world at that time. So this is what it means when he says, I am raising up the Chaldeans. These people rose from obscurity. Before this, nobody would have ever believed or thought that this people group, this group of people would have been the ones that was described there in Deuteronomy chapter 28. But God was raising them up. They were a new people group. But I also want you to notice that their wickedness, their legend, as it were, was notorious throughout the earth. Even though they were newcomers on the scene, their reputation preceded him. Notice it says they were a fierce and impetuous people who marched about the earth to seize dwelling places that are not theirs. This really is the word he's using here just to describe the violent force and attitude of the Babylonians. Right? Fierce, impetuous, marching throughout the earth to seize dwelling places which are not theirs. They're just a, 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 like a, a raging flood. Their, their wickedness and their anger and their desire is just to go and to take over everything they can to seize houses and towns and villages and cities and just to continue to grow their empire. They're really an unstoppable force. This is what God is pointing to there. He describes them as marching throughout all of the earth. He says, there is coming a force that you cannot stop because I've raised it up. I want you to notice thirdly, verse 7, that they, now describing the Babylonians, they were an unruly people. Look at verse 7. They are dreaded and feared. Their justice and authority originate within themselves. They were a people of terror. The Babylonians struck terror into the heart of anyone who knew them or who had experienced their reign. Their ruthless and diabolical behavior was really the stuff of legendary status. I want to read just a couple of things from Jeremiah where he describes some of the things and some of the actions and the ways which the Babylonian army acted. Jeremiah chapter 39. But the army of the Chaldeans pursued them and overtook Zedekiah in the plains of Jericho. And they seized him and brought him up to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon at Riblah in the land of Hamath, and he passed sentence on him. Then the king of Babylon slew the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes at Riblah. The king of Babylon also slew all the nobles of Judah. He then blinded Zedekiah's eyes and bound him in fetters of bronze to bring him to Babylon. The Chaldeans also burned with fire the king's palaces and the houses of the people, and they broke down the walls of Jerusalem. As for the rest of the people who were left in the city, to the deserters who had gone over to him and the rest of the people who remained... Nebuzadran, the king of the bodyguard, carried them into exile into Babylon. He kills Zedekiah's sons before his eyes. He kills all of his leaders. And then he blinds him, burns his house, burns the houses of the people, tears down the city. This is the kind of things that the Babylonians were known for. And the people of Judah would have known this. They would have seen these things begin to happen. They would have watched this happen in places in Egypt and in Assyria and in other places around them on the outside. And again, they thought they were isolated. We are God's people. God will protect us even from the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, even from the destruction of his power. And now all of that protection, in a sense, has been taken away because God says, I have raised up this nation I have raised up this wicked people and they're coming for you. Amen. Can you imagine? 
There are some of you in this room who have lived through certain periods of United States history where you, you have a, 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 a symbolic understanding of this. Many of you grew up going, living through the Cold War. There were bomb shelters everywhere, right? Everyone was worried about a nuclear attack and nuclear fallout. Today, they have training drills in schools for what you do in the case of a fire, what you may do in the case of a, of a tornado. But for many of you, when you were in school, you had drills on what to do in case of an atomic bomb being dropped, how to flee to a bomb shelter, how to hide under certain things. There were certain periods of time in the United States history where there was a real collective fear that an attack might come to this nation. And so people lived their lives in that operation. They were really fearful of what would happen. But that was an uncertainty. Right? It was uncertain as to whether that would happen, but people were still fearful of what could happen or what might happen. But what God is saying here is this is not a might happen or a could happen. This is a going to happen. This is coming to you. So you can imagine the fear because they understand who they are. And he says this, they are dreaded and feared. And why? Not only because they're wicked, he says, because their justice and authority originate within themselves. There is a difference between an army who is fierce, who operates under the principles of righteousness. God's people would go forth throughout the Old Testament under God's righteous command, and they would do things that seemed violent. They would do things that seemed fierce as they would go in and destroy entire nations. Go in and destroy entire cities. But they weren't doing that under their own authority. They were doing that under the authority of Almighty God by His permission and by His will. The Chaldeans, the Babylonians, the reason they were so be feared is they had no authority but themselves. Their wickedness was driven from wickedness. When they thought about who am I responsible for, I'm just responsible to myself. I'm not responsible to God. I'm not responsible to anybody else. In their own mind, they were their own source of power and authority and justice originated within themselves. And God says, that's why you fear them. Because they have no moral compass. What they're going to do should terrify you. I want you to notice fourthly, that they were an unmatched fury. We'll move through these verses kind of quick because we're running out of time this morning. Look verses 8 through 10. Really what he describes here in these verses is he, he, he draws now this understanding of how they're going to operate. And he's really describing this, this, this fierce force that is coming from the Babylonians. He describes them in some interesting ways here that we'll kind of unpack. He says their horses are swifter than leopards and keener than wolves in the evening. Their horsemen come galloping. They horsemen come from afar. They fly like eagles swooping down to devour. All of them come for violence. The horde of their faces moves forward. They collect captives like sand. They mock at kings and rulers are a laughing matter to them. They laugh at every fortress. They heap up rubble to capture it. So he says they're to be dreaded and feared, and now he explains why. First, he describes their army there in verse 8. He says their horses are swifter than leopards. He's really talking about the speed in which they move. 
He's talking about just how swift that they are. If you've ever watched a leopard run, you've ever watched a, a, one of these, either a cheetah or a leopard, a cat that has this just insurmountable speed, right? And why do they do that? So that they can catch their prey. Nothing can outrun them. If they set their mind on it, they're going to get there, they're going to attack it, and they're going to devour it. And this is exactly the picture that God is pointing out here. He says, you can run, but you'll never outrun them. You can flee, but they're going to capture you. And they're going to come in so quickly, so speedily, that there's really no point for you even to try to get away. He says that they are not just swifter than leopards, but they're keener than wolves in the evening. Now, what does that mean, wolves in the evening? Now, if you studied the life of a wolf, you know that wolves are really a nocturnal creature. They don't do a whole lot during the day. It's much easier for them to prey and to pounce at night. So wolves in the evening are very, very hungry because they've gone all day without anything to eat. And this is what God is pointing out. He says they're going to come in with such a desire and such a hunger just as the wolves do as they go out for their first evening hunt. They've been sitting all day without evening, and now dinner time has come. He says, the Chaldeans are going to come to you just as these wolves do, hungry for you, hungry for attack, hungry for violence, hungry for wickedness. And he says, their horsemen come from afar galloping. They fly like an eagle swooping down to devour Again, just more language that God is using here to describe the speed and the cunningness and the fierceness with which they were coming to accomplish this. But look at verse number 9. Because in verse number 9, he doesn't just describe the resources because the resources that they have are are great. But notice their resolve. These Babylonians were single-minded people. And notice what they were single-mindedly focused on there in verse 9. He says, all of them come for violence. All of them. The entire nation. Every single soldier. Every single person. Every single man, woman, and child. They all come for violence. Now, it would be different if you were dealing with a group of people who just some of them were wicked. Some of them were driven for terror and for violence, but God says all of them are driven for violence. They're driven for violence and and lots of it. One commentator put it this way, the prophet had complained of the violence that he had seen in his own land. But the violence that he had seen will be mere child's play when it comes to the violence that is to come. Remember what he had said to his nation in Deuteronomy chapter 28? They will eat the offspring of your herd, the produce of your ground until you're destroyed, leaving you no grain, no new wine, no oil. They will increase in the herd of your flocks. They will tear down everything. This is exactly what God is describing. He says they're coming in with such force and such violence that there will be nothing that will be left untouched. Jeremiah chapter 5, God again describing what was going to happen. He says, Behold, I am bringing a nation against you from afar, O house of Israel. Declares the Lord, it is an enduring nation. It is an ancient nation, a nation whose language you do not know, nor can you understand what they say. Their quiver is like an open grave. 
All of them are mighty men. They will devour your harvest and your food. They will devour your sons and your daughters. They will devour your flocks and your herds. They will devour your vines and your fig trees. They will demolish with the sword your fortified cities in which you trust. God calls them to understand the terror for which they are coming. He goes on. Because not only were they single-minded, but they were relentless. Look at the second part of verse 9. Their horde of faces moves forward. Now the King James translated it this way. Their faces shall sup up as the east wind. Really, it's the idea of, of their fury, of how fast they're coming and how relentless they're going to be. The New American says that their standard says that the horde of their faces moves forward. And it's this idea of a continual movement. And the reason the idea is being drawn from the east wind is that they're uh, in the land of Judah. They're in, in Israel and in that region. There's really always a constant wind that is blowing. And at times that wind can become so fierce that it picks up sand and things and just drives it across the region. So it would have been a very recognized expression of something that is being driven across and bringing destruction at times. And he says, this is the way it's going to be. He says, they're just going to be just like the wind. They're going to come in with a fury, come in with such violence. But they were not just relentless in their fury in their, that area, but they were also relentless in their plunder. Notice what it says. They collect captives like sand. As they moved from place to place, devouring any nation that stood in their path, they were coming for the nation of Judah. And when they did come, the destruction would be fierce and the captives would be many. It's like someone scooping up a grain of sand. The grains too numerous to count. So would it be with the number of people who were taken captive by the Babylonians when they came to execute God's judgment on the nation. Jeremiah chapter 15, he says, Their widows will be more numerous than me than the sands of the seas. They were going to come in, and everywhere they went, they would just gather as many people to gather them up as prisoners, just like the grains of sand. So many people that you could not even stand to count them. But they were not only relentless in their fury and their plunder, they were relentless in their ridicule. Notice the verse 10. He says, they mock at kings and rulers are a laughing matter to them. They laugh at every fortress and they heap up rubble to capture it. Nothing stood in the way of the Babylonian army. Nothing terrified them, although they terrified everyone. As they looked out and they saw other nations, it says they mocked the kings and rulers were a laughing matter to them. They would look out and they'd see another king and a leader and they'd say, oh, it's just a matter of time. We'll have that. We'll conquer them. No one struck fear into their heart. He said they laugh at every fortress and heap up rubble to capture it. This was the amazing thing. So many cities in that day were, were built with siege walls around them in order to protect themselves. Many of them were, were, were very, very high walls and they built them so as that no one could get in or out. Well, the Babylonians devised a plan and they did this so often. And this is what he's referring to in verse 10 when he says they heap up rubble to capture it. 
The Babylonians devised a plan and used this in many different accounts where they would gather stones and dirt and just build a large earthen ramp on the outside of the city as high as they needed to in order to just be able to climb up over it and to enter into the city to take it. Now you remember, this was before the days of Caterpillar and John Deere. The Babylonians weren't taking around a bunch of trucks of construction equipment. They had to do all of this by hand. And why is that important? Because that shows you the fervor and the anger and the terror and the desire for all conquering power that the Babylonians had. That they were willing to put that much effort and work into taking these cities. They didn't just pass by and wait for another time. They said, we're going to take this city and we're going to do whatever is necessary to take it. And God points this out. Because again, he's calling the nation of Judah to understand. He says, you may think that because of your kings or because of those rulers you have, because of the fortress of your city, because of how strong it is, because of how impenetrable it's been for centuries, that you're not going to fall. But let me tell you, he says, they laugh at you. They mock you. You're a joke to them. And they will conquer every single place that they go and they will conquer you as well. Final thing I want you to notice here. Not just their unmatched fury, but finally there in verse 11. I want you to notice an unbecoming end. Because the question we have to ask is, how can God do this, right? I mean, as Christians, let's be honest, we ask this question, how could God use a wicked nation like this to accomplish His purposes? And the reason that he can do it is because even though God allows the wicked to sometimes do what they do and sometimes he uses them to accomplish his purposes, he does not allow wickedness to go unpunished. They continue to heap up judgment against themselves. God allows them to do it. He allows them to keep digging the proverbial hole and the proverbial grave for themselves. And with every shovel full of dirt that they throw out of the grave, they're digging the hole deeper and deeper and deeper. But one day, judgment will come. And this is what he points out in verse 11. He says, they will sweep through like the wind and pass on, but they will be held guilty. They whose strength is their God. He says, they're going to do what they're going to do. He says, they're going to come through and accomplish everything that I've set out to do. They're going to bring judgment to the nation of Judah so that you will be drawn back to me. He said, and they will march on to city after city after city after city. He said, but one day my judgment will come. One day they will fall. One day they will falter. Why? Because their strength is their God. They relied, the nation of Babylon did, they relied in themselves. They thought that because they were so mighty, they could never be defeated. They thought because they were so mighty that they were, they were their own God. Now we know from scriptures that later on, King Nebuchadnezzar would, be, would lose his mind and be driven out to live as a beast out in the field. If you go back to, to Daniel chapter 4, he was just dethroned from his seat Because God always accomplishes perfect justice and righteousness. Let's go back to the beginning. To understand that God answers prayers. 
But He sometimes answers prayers in ways that we could never imagine or consider. So many people use that verse. I've heard that verse used that, you know, I'm going to do a thing in your days that you would not believe even if you were told. I've heard that verse abused so many times to talk about God doing some type of of grand spiritual thing. I think that God, we know that God does those things, but that's not the context of what God's doing here. God is telling him, he said, I'm going to do something you would not believe in bringing justice, true justice to come to pass. So we need to remember that God does answer prayers, but oftentimes he does it in a way that we would never believe or expect. And if he does it that way, we must not be dismayed. We must not be taken aback because God always has his perfect will and plan in place. God was not wrong in what he did. He was perfectly right in what he did because it was what was necessary to bring and to awaken his people to where they needed to be. And sometimes God answers our prayers in such unexpected ways. Why? Because it's exactly what we need to draw us to where he wants us to be. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. Lord, we pray that you would help us. Lord, help us to trust you more deeply. That when we pray and that you answer prayers, that Lord, we would not be dismayed when you answer them in unexpected ways. Lord, we do pray for our nation. Father, I know that as I've studied this book, Lord, I see, Lord, so many parallels of of things that we're experiencing now. And Lord, I know that it's been true of, of almost every generation of people that have lived on the face of the earth. That there are those who claim the name of Christ, claim the name of righteousness, yet live wickedly. That there are nations who claim to be nations that are good and godly, but yet, Lord, promote wickedness and idolatry. And Lord, we need a change. Lord, we need your spirit to move in the hearts of people, to convict of sin, to convict of unrighteousness, to draw people to yourself. And Lord, we desire that you would do that through a move of revival in your spirit. Lord, we desire that you would do that in ways that you have done in the past. But Lord, we also understand that sometimes you answer those prayers in much harder to comprehend ways. And Lord, we pray as believers that Lord, whatever your decision is, whatever your answer is, that you'll help us to look and to say, it is good because it comes from you. Guide our hearts this morning, Lord, as we come to your table. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.